theme song for the Gear Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, episode 26. Here we are. Uncle Leon, how you going, mate? Pretty good, mate. And Troy, we are joined by Stephen Dawson today. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, mate? My pleasure. No problem. I'm great. Now, people may be aware of you for several reasons, in fact. Uh, One, and you know, this is called The Gear Podcast, so I'm sure we'll be talking about plenty of this, is that you worked for Marshall Amplification for a while. How many years were you there? I was there from January 2005 to about September 2014. That's pretty impressive. So ne- nearly 10 years. Nearly 10, 10 years, years. Yeah. yeah. And you mm-hmm. also play guitar in the reformed version of Geordie, who some people are no doubt aware of because of their original links to Brian Johnson. How long have you been doing that gig? Uh, we started that in 2017 because Jordy was off the grid for a long time. They, they just sort of, they, they put it on the back burner. Um, and then we did, it was just a, a friend. I used to play with the animals as well. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And the, the agent who used to book us out as the animals uh, called me one day and said, what's the what's the Jordy boys doing? I said, I don't know, let me find out. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave I gave Tom Hill a ring the bass player and said, uh, "Are you up for another round? You know, one last final hurrah." <laughs> and he said yes. And he contacted Brian, the, Brian Gibson, the drummer. Obviously, the singer wasn't available. <laughs> uh, and the original guitarist who wrote all of the songs as well. He lives in Cyprus. Oh, okay. Um, but he's still involved on that side of it, so he's, he's still in the family and still writes and still is involved with recording. That's it. So, awesome. so how often do you guys? I mean, how many gigs a year would would you do with Geordie? Um, well, we we, it's, we don't gig all of the time because obviously I've got my business and uh, we tend to go out in the summer. For instance, we're doing a, a couple of festivals this one, uh, one in Belgium. Uh, one in Kent here, uh, when we're doing the Half Moon in Putney, uh, which is a well-known pub gig. Uh, and we, we tend to put gigs around main anchor gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, we, I mean, we might do a, a, a gig every month, two gigs a month. We don't really want to do, it's not full-time. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. You know, we haven't got, none of us have got time to do it full-time, so... And Terry has actually got his other band, um, which is called Kossoff, the band plays on, which is like, you know, a nod to his other main band deal. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's nice and easy. It's not, there's no high pressure. It's just, you know, enjoyable. Great. So when you're, this, not, when you're not doing that, what else are you doing? Are you still building amps and repairing amps? And yes. Yeah, I, I uh, repair, service, modify, upgrade uh, amplifiers. Um, uh, people send me amplifiers from all over, all over Europe. Uh, it's it's mad, <laughs> even just for a service. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I get I get vintage moderns coming from Italy and things, things like that. And I says, just send it to a local guy. It's just a service. No, no, no. no. It's got to go, go back to, to you. Got to go back to the dad, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is 
We love a segue on this podcast, so that is the perfect segue. Uh, I am aware of I'm aware of your work as an amp designer because of the vintage modern, which I no longer own, but it was one of my favorite amps that I did own, and a pretty unique. I mean. Pretty unique for a modern Marshall, and it's in the name, the Vintage Modern. I did a bunch of videos with it on my channel in the early days of the channel, and they are still really popular. Uh, they've definitely got a, I would say, like a cult following. You know, if, if people mm. know about that amp, then then they're pretty passionately into it. So, where along the line, you know, we'll talk about the Marshall thing. Where along the line, how far into your stint at Marshall were you when you designed that amp? Not too far in, actually. The first, the, my first project with Marshall was, I don't know if you remember, the 40th anniversary, the dual output transformer. What? Dual output transformer. I'm aware of the 30th, but never the 40th. Right. Well, the 40th anniversary was, the, it, there wasn't very many of these originally, but in 1965, Pete Townsend asked Marshall for a louder amp because mm -hmm. he was being drowned out by the crowd. So, so he said, I want, I want twice the amount of speakers and I want twice the power of the amplifier. And Marshall thought, no, there's nobody going to want that. We're not going to put that in under the catalog. So what they did was they actually gave him a 100 watt amp, which used two 50 watt output transformers. Wow. Oh, okay. And then they made a bunch of them for the Who, six of them, I think, for the Who. And then the hill went out with it, and an eight by twelve cab. Which for that, that's a really infamous picture. I've seen that picture, and I, I'm aware of that part of the story. Mostly the cab. It's. I mean, the, um, I've seen that photo as well, and it. My back. No, my being hurts looking at that. But for, I guess from that, that's where you get the iconic. You know. A and B cabinet stacked on top of each other, right? It, it kind of evolved from that, yes, when the roadies started complaining. And, uh, <laughs> then, then anyway, there was only six made for the who and six wow. made for the small faces. Yeah, so uh, there's a guy who brought in uh, uh, an amp which had JHX on it and it was verified as belonging to Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Back there in the day. Go. These amps have got a different sound from the, the, the EL34, you know, a typical Marshall evolution you know and i thought it'd be nice to just have these with some of the features of later marshals um and then i, I at the time the the, the <clears throat> flagship project was the jvm mm -hmm. uh and santiago was doing that so i mean santiago is uh highly highly qualified uh engineer high much more highly qualified than i am i'm more tonal architect you know searching for the yeah uh so they gave the, the jvm project to him and, and i and we said well what was if people don't want an amp with loads and loads of features and there's still a lot of people who like the old you know so that was me people if people didn't want that they wouldn't go to another company mm -hmm. they'd stay with marshall and go for the the alternative so i i think I think someone called it, you know, it was going to be a Vox killer. <laughs> because because Vox, Vox was um, distributed by Korg, who was in America, who also distributed Marshall. Oh, okay. And it was just, it was just from that point of view, you know. Um, I love Vox, it's the, it's the 30s, so I didn't like that term. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and anyway, I, I, I just started setting about, and I thought, you know, one of the things, the JCM 800 um, was a very humbugger-friendly amp, but not single coils. Mm, that bright uh, in there, oof. It's, it's just, it's just got, it hadn't got enough bottom end, and it, it's too sharp. And uh, I, there was no way to dial it out. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'm going to put something on a much better system by dialing. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit like linking the inputs, but it's a bit more sophisticated than that. Um, so you could you could play with any guitar. So no guitarist could complain. It doesn't suit my guitar. You know, I mean, there's people with gretches. Mm. Everything Absolutely. you know, right machines. <clears throat> so yeah. Obviously, what you're referencing there are the, you know, I think a lot of people who have played non-master volume Marshalls are familiar with, yeah, you, know, you have the four inputs and each channel has a control, mm-hmm. but then you you bridge them and you can kind of balance them, which is, is a, it's such a sound, right? But you, what were the controls called? Were they body and detail? Body and detail. Yeah. So how, um, did, you, how did you come up with those and what exactly do they do? Because they're obviously inspired by that, but... They, in my experience with the amp, it, it was its own thing. Yeah. Um, the names of those controls actually Santiago came up with those names. All oh, right. Um, I think I had called it Girth and something else. Girth. <laughs> in the on. development process, something. Yeah, that's so funny because I had, um, <laughs> unrelated, I'm sure you're aware of um, uh, Cherryatone and uh, Nick making apps in malaysia and i had him make me uh like a hot rod marshall thing and i was like oh can you put a negative feedback pot on there so i can play around with that and he was like yeah what do you want to call it and i was like let's call it girth so yeah. the amp has a girth <laughs> control in there and it's like I, I i'd highly approve of that but again putting that on uh on an amp uh, i can see why they went with what they went with it's i mean i, I wasn't that precious about about that yeah. i mean I, I just as long as it's sort of like it was you know, appropriate for the what it did. You know, uh, and the, the the that side of it, um, the the body control, it actually literally does just do the, the low harmonics and it's rolled off on the uh, on the top end, so okay. it doesn't give it. Whereas the old plexus, they still got the top end too. You know, yeah. And the the higher one rolls off on the bottom, so you kind of it's like a crossover. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Because I, I, I noticed it was like you could make it sound quite tight, for use of a better yeah. term, with the uh, sort of high end control cranked up. Yeah. 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 And and the mid boost button just filled that crossover point in. Right. I so see. just fascinating. Straight across, you know. And some people like that. Some people want that mid boost on a on a foot switch. Um, the Goldridge asked if he could have that on a on a foot switch. Gotcha. I was going to say, because I remember his demos of that amp, and I kind mm. of, when I think of what that amp sounds like, I kind of think about, um, like, his tone has that sort of, like, I don't know, it's, like, sticky. That's that's the way I would describe it. It's, like, it got clarity, but it's also got this really lovely kind of creamy saturation about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of harmonic, harmonic-y grunge. Yes, it's very, it's very <laughs> difficult to use buzzwords to, to exactly. describe sound, but everyone knows yeah. in the head what we're <laughs> after. I mean, I always my um, when it, my heroes were all the seventies guys. Um, I mean, like say for Santiago, we would tell you his heroes are like what you know, like Malmsteen and mm-hmm. 
but most teams' heroes are my heroes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blackmore and Rock and so you're well, Santiago's hero. Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Page. I mean, Led Zeppelin, my favorite band ever. I mean, I went I, the first band I ever saw in 1972. Oh, this it just blew my mind. You know, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. Peak, absolute peak. I've been going yeah. through, uh, I always go through these phases and cycles with Zeppelin where I don't listen to them for a while and then I go back and re-listen to it and, you know, re-appreciate all of it kind of thing. But, yeah, I've been I've been on a bit of a kick recently with so much of that and just the, you know, like the kind of, I think most people, if you don't, like, if you don't play guitar, you're just like, yeah, they're that loud, screechy band um, with the guy <laughs> in the dragon suit. But they, they did so much, and, you know, there's so much texture and the production's really interesting. It was so transcendental. Every song was different from the next, and every album was different from the... Uh, for me, that can't be surpassed. Uh, just like the Jeff Beck and the other guitarists. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was... Um, I was uh, one of my students. We were talking about Jeff Beck the other day, and uh, yeah, just he—he'd only listened to Jeff's kind of newer stuff. I think mm-hmm. like post guitar shop, and I was like, "Oh, like have you listened to Blow by Blow and Wired?" He was like, "No, I haven't." It's like, man, that's like if you want to learn that, you kind of got to just start there and try to cop some of that, and then you see the evolution of how expressive he was. And I mean, he was uh- still one of the just greatest performances i've seen was him and you know he was playing a strat straight into a dsl there was like nothing <laughs> else it was a backline amp and it was like the as you said on that level of like yeah this is just that little bit extra something special he he didn't he wasn't bothered about the amp he played into really I and mean, as long as it did what he wanted to do it i had a the good fortune to spend two days in rehearsal with wow um, it, it, with Marshall, you know, like there was me and Paul Marshall went down. And we're going to talk about a second trap with him, but to be honest, Jeff wasn't that bothered about it. I mean, when we said, you know, what do you want? He goes, well, I just want a louder, loud, you know, <laughs> and I'll do the rest. He, he, he was a pedal guy, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And uh, he was rehearsing. It was uh, he had uh, Narada Michael Walton on drums. Um, the Rhonda Smith on bass. Okay, yeah. I took over, I, took over from Tal. Yeah, yeah. So I saw, I've seen, I got to see Jeff twice. Once was with Tal Wilkenfield on bass and yeah. uh, Vinnie Colliuda. And that was yeah. like this, you know, supreme, everybody just playing, like, you know, like you'd see someone in a jazz club. And I saw him at a Blues and Roots festival with Rhonda on bass and uh, Michael Walden. Uh, on yeah. drums and it was a completely different show it was like mm. it was wild you know <laughs> the way she played and the way he was playing drums and it, it just had that like I, I i loved seeing the first one but yeah there was like something special about that band and i don't know he just kind of did his thing and let the other players play you know sometimes you see these kind of legends and it's all about them and mm. not so much the band he just kind of hung back and let them go nuts I think he he just liked to, he liked to play with people who were who were inspirational players. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people who inspired him and and it brought out the best of him. And he was quite quite an innocent in in, in music. I mean, I to be honest, when I I mean, I spent you know a good few hours talking to Jeff, which was bizarre for me. If you can <laughs> imagine, you know, trying here's me trying not to be a fanboy, uh, and I talked to him about about gear, and uh, he had 
he was using the, the 40th anniversary. That's where he, he was actually using one of those. That's a nice but tie, he's, isn't it? But his his sound guys didn't like the fact he was using that because they couldn't have as much control as what they wanted. Right. And I remember he, he, he was it was quite sad really because he was telling me he says it's that you know oftentimes on on stage he says I'll turn the volume right down right down to a whisper. He says the monitor guys turned up in the monitor, <laughs> counteracting what I'm doing. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but the one of the guys just doing what he would try, yeah, know, trying to but, do, yeah, yeah, what he's trying to do. So it's like, and so Jeff's a very organic, you know, sort of dynamic player, and it's I wouldn't like to try and do the sound for Jeff, and you know, anticipate where he's thinking at any time, you know. But um, I, I, just a, a daft story. Um, I, I I made a, a tone bender. Can you remember the tone benders? Color sound tone benders. Mm. Yep. Do you remember that? It was, it was a false pedal, really, but I used to have one of those when I was a teenager, and I loved it, and I sold it for, to buy a Big Muff. <laughs> because the Big Muff, um, the, the blurb in the marketing center, violin like sustain. <laughs> I like that. And to, and to me, I thought, that's the sound of Richie Blackmore on Machine Head. All oh, right. And that's the sound that I wanted so I sold this tone bender and bought the big muff, and it sounded nothing like this. It sounded like Collis and Tonner on a neck pickup. <laughs> so so I, I always regretted that. So many years later, I, I, I thought, I'm going to make myself a tone bender. So I made myself a tone bender, and it turned out really, really well. And I took it along to this to this Jack Beck rehearsal because I just wanted to get his opinion, you know, because I know he used to use them back in yeah. the day. And I said, Jeff, can I just uh, ask you what your opinion on this? I just so he said, yeah, yeah, pl plug it in, plug it in. So I plugged it in, and uh, he said, "Wow!" He says, "Listen, listen to what you're doing to that amp, man. That's that's it. that's what. Can I can I use it on my world tour?" And I thought, <laughs> "Oh God, I've only got one. You know what I mean?" Yeah. No, <laughs> said, no, Jeff Beck. Yeah, well, and I said, Jeff, well, I'll help you, mate. I, I said, I said, I, I, I wouldn't for anybody else. I says, but I can't say no to you. And I says, <laughs> he said, well, can you make me? Can you make me some? I says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. And anyway, I couldn't find the transistors that gave the right sound. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because he wanted, he wanted four. He says, it's, it's, there's no point having one. He says, I need four. Because you know, you've seen the Bruce he so. <laughs> uh, And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't. It was obsolete components, so I said, I can't make them. I said, but can I have that one back, please? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so I got it back. I was broken hard because I thought, you know. That's amazing, though, you know, the fact that you got it back, um, that it just wasn't like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that guy, so whatever. But that's, uh, oh, man, that's so funny, especially the just the tie-in there, the, like, the, the thing that I had and – you know, we've all been through that with gear and then you're sort of like at the point where you're like, I should either rebuy that or I should, I should just do it myself, you know? So that's, um, that's. Yeah. That's but you couldn't, obviously, obviously you couldn't rebuy the tournament. Now there were discontinued years previous. Well, I yeah. Care period, 14 pound for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's super collectible now. I think there's, there's a lot of YouTube videos and comparisons and, you know, I think – didn't JHS do a big video about tone benders maybe? Like one of the massive I video so, essays. Yeah. And, it's it's yeah. kind of um, 
Steve, I'm sure for you, you'd like this band, but you know, the band Rival Sons, I imagine they're. Yes. Yeah, I've, so, saw, I've seen them. Yeah. So they kind of like, they're like, uh, and I, I, I say this is sort of like, in terms of doing the Zeppelin thing, I feel like they really do it right. Like they got the, they got the right energy from it where it's like, they have a lot of songs that sound different. It's not just like, oh, well, there's someone screeching and there's loud <laughs> guitar solos and boom, boom drums. Um, but there was, I, I did a show recently um, and there was this young band who opened and they, you know, were very, very Zeppelin inspired, but uh, they had two guitar players um, and one of them was playing a Firebird and he just kind of had that sound. And I said, oh, dude, like what, what fuzz are you using? Because that's the, I was like, that's the Rival Sun sound. And he was like, oh my God, I love that band so much. It's a tone bender. Like, and he had like two or three different tone bender style clones on his board. And he was like, oh, you know, this one does this era. And it's a whole, whole rabbit Sub-culture. hole. I guess because I guess because they're so simple that the fewer components you have, the more impact those components have, right? It's it is it's very simple circuit. So there's only three transistors. Um, but it's the transistors are critical and to the sound you get. Uh, now the original ones like germanium transistors, uh, which are a different characteristic, but each germanium tra- type has a has a sound in itself. And it's a it's a nightmare really because you know it, it, it's not repeatable. You have to right. if you get a bunch of germanium transistors, you've got to select. You know. <laughs> yeah. So that's why they would be very expensive if they actually made, you know, really good ones, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, was, I don't know why I got rid of my original one. I said, let's shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a different time, though. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was, there's so many stories of like that. I think up until the internet, when, you know, the, all the knowledge was there or it's, and things become way more collectible and stuff, you, you just wouldn't, no one would have known. It's like the stories of the, um, there's so many of them because uh, like, you know, I'm in my recording studio at the moment, I'm a recording engineer mm-hmm. and people talk about, oh, well in the mid seventies when um, like Neumann U87s and stuff came along, all of a sudden the U47s just went in the skip bin or the, you know, the, I guess, you know, it's not called skip bin everywhere else, but you know, it's just, they're literally in thrown the skip, away. In the skip, yeah. It is a skip, yeah. yeah. They're just thrown away and, and people didn't know that fast forward 30, 40 years, that's like $20,000 to get another one. It's just um, the amount of money that gets flushed down the drain. But even there was a um, a TV station here uh, about uh, 20 years ago where they had one of the, um, the what was it, the uh, EMT plate, the 140 big plates. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they called up my, this is what I was studying, called up my old lecturer and said, oh, we've we got to get rid of this thing. It's just taking up space. Um, it's either going to go to you right now or it's getting thrown in the trash. And he said, well, I can't pick it up. And said, well, I guess it's going in the trash then. And sure enough, oh. there it goes. Oh, never. And, um, but that's just, that's life. And you just wouldn't, either you don't know or you don't care. So Mate, they should have called Bill. He would have gone and got it from the bin. <laughs> <laughs> different it's time. so sad to think of how much really excellent gear has just gone by the wayside because people don't know what it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, wasn't there – I read a story, and I feel like I've mentioned this. I might have mentioned it to Santiago where when, like, the Vox amps the Beatles were using, mm. um, they because they were just having to run them at full blast, they kept returning. Like, you know, anytime they'd come back through, they're like, oh, we've got a bunch of amps which aren't functioning, so – 
we're out of backups. We'll just take them to the factory and you give us a bunch of new ones. And that basically the old ones kind of never got repaired. And when that building either got sold or they left the premises, it just all got tossed into landfill. So they were like, you know, it's like somewhere, somewhere there is a like a parking lot or a building and buried underneath that are just the remnants of all these, you know, classic amps. I, th- I think they should find the person who made that decision and bring it to book. <laughs> yeah. Even now. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I have a 1961 AC30. Oh. It's a one. It's not a black one. It's a phone one. Oh, the, really? The original ones the Beatles had. I'm frightened to take it out of the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, man, I, that, I mean, that'd be in that category now of just, you know, at the time... Oh yeah, it's the thing that we use. It's loud enough, but there's, there, yeah. there was that arms race in the sixties and seventies for volume, and you know that's all kind of been superseded by like PA's are so good now that now you kind of let the PA do the work mm-hmm. and you play within those parameters. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's had, uh, what's special about so, that? Have you opened it up? I played it. I played it when I was in the animals. Um, and, and in fact, we used to do double head, double tours with the Yardbirds, and uh, they used to ask if they could use that amp as well. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> I, it. I reckon I've played, I've, I haven't played that many AC30s, but two stick out to me. I have a friend who's a recording engineer in Troy and I are in Perth, so the other side of Australia in Sydney, and uh, he's he recorded some very very big albums by Australian bands here. Uh, and he's got, I think it's might've been like a 63 or a 64 AC 30. And I got to go to his house and play it. And it was just like the sound. As soon as he mentioned the band he'd used it with, it's like, oh yeah, that's the sound of that entire record, which you hear so much on the radio now. And it was just, yeah, that was sort of like, ah, the newer ones definitely don't sound like this. And then I remember trying out maybe three of them in a room, like a reissue, it was like a reissue, then a reissue that had had greenbacks put in it, and then a 70s AC30 with fanes, and it was so heavy. But the fanes had this like really – it didn't really sound like a classic Vox sound, but it was it was unique, and that's kind of stuck with me. A very distinctive sound. My favorite way to – my, mine's a non-top boost. Okay. okay. Um, and my favorite way to use the AC30 is just to plug into the normal channel mm. with a treble booster. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's kind of essential, isn't it? And as, there's, there's no tone controls in the box apart from the top cut, but you don't need if you just put a channel booster into the normal channel, crank it up. That's it's, that's also that's my favorite Brian way to May. use them too. Um, Brian May, yeah, Richie Blackmore, Tony Iommi, uh, all of, you know that was the what happened in the early days, you know. Yeah, and it's beautiful sound, it's just lovely, um, and and. One of my philosophies when I'm when I was just designing uh, the amps is to get that kind of effect. If I if I want to, because I think that is vintage tone is very much based on that kind of you know that kind of system. Yeah, um, it's it's sort of like I I mean I always remember people saying oh it's very pure, but. It's weird talking about purity when you're talking about things that are heavily distorted, but it's a, it's, you know, like if you're in, when someone's doing engineering or maths or something, they talk about working up from first principles. It's like, yes, it, it gets you closer to those first principles. Whereas, you know, as much as I love 
multi-channel amps and boogies with various switches and you know there, there's something very very to the point about you got an app that doesn't you know again your your palette is maybe a bit more limited so you have to work more on the expressive qualities in your hands and you, you maybe you actually play absolutely. a bit more absolutely your fingers are called upon to do more work i mean it's you know vintage tone when i was when i was kind of listening when I was a teenager to guitarists so i loved they all started their own sound they mm. all sounded unique they didn't all you know you could just buy one note <laughs> one two notes i mean you could just tell who it was straight away and that was you know that's because there was a quality in in the in the sound that allowed that as you know it's not true of everybody these days but to me when i listen to a lot of people it's kind of homogenized mm-hmm. and i it's think like the, the the it's one of the downsides of so much information being available is that you kind of don't have to figure it out for yourself mm-hmm. um yeah and I, think, a, I mean, I mean, you, you know, you, like, sorry, mate, you go. I was just going to say, you, you know, it wasn't a question of just the gain because people had a lot of gain back then. It was about the tone, you know. So that's all I wanted to say. Please go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, was going to say, obviously, like with that appreciation for those kind of things, with something like the vintage modern, and how, I mean, what, how long did that take to develop, for example, to kind of get it? from concept to something that's working and then what was the kind of final because it's one thing to just design an app that does that but with a company like marshall you've got to build things to scale right and you've got compliance and you've got you know it's got to be manufactured to a certain spec and all those kind of things yeah there's a lot of stages to go through i mean (laughs) it it took it took uh probably a year to 18 months and there was three prototypes. Um, had to go through the safety test houses. And the safety test houses, I think Santiago touched on this as well. Yes. That, I mean, basically, they'll, just, they'll drop a spanner on, on the circuit when it's live, and if it catches fire, you, you fail. <laughs> it, ha- it has to fail safe. It has to, you know, so it has to be kind of bomb-proof, you know. And if so, the machine that goes ping goes ping for whatever reason, then you fail, yeah, you know. No yeah, one knows I mean, it's ping. We get these we get these amps back from the from the test houses and the being on fire and everything you know what I mean? <laughs> other other you know there's there's black marks all over the place where they try yeah. to make it go on fire. California you know, jam, it's, it's like Marshall. My, my poor amp, what you've been doing to it? You know I mean? um, and then it's you know there's this the drop test where they drop the amp mm-hmm. from six foot and it hasn't got a you know there's got to be a limited amount of damage. Right. So, yeah. Let's well, do it. Let, let me watch that. <laughs> I was saying to Troy on on last week's episode that uh, I, when I was in high school, I had a Marshall TSL. I still have the amp, but it was on a raised stage and then on a quad box. And someone walked behind the stage while the amp was on. I'd finished playing, but you know, left my amp on. It was probably on standby. Someone was walked behind the stage. Something happened, and apparently the the head just fell straight back while it was on. So someone came came in and was like, oh, your amp's fallen off stage. So I ran around, panicked. And uh, all that had happened was like the speaker jack had broken. Mm-hmm. Then I plugged the amp in and it still worked. And I don't know if – I've ne- I, like, I, I don't love the sound of that amp, so I don't know if it like if something got just enough damaged. But, I mean, it's a testament to that kind of process where, yeah, that can happen and it just still goes. Whereas, you know, obviously – 
a vintage amp might not do that or an amp that your mate who knows a bit about how to wire stuff and he can do some sweet mods might not do it, yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of boutique uh, manufacturers, they'll use, they'll use top quality components because they're only building a handful. Mm. Yep. You know, if you times that by 10,000, that gets, that's a lot of extra money. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, that, you know, but what they don't do, a lot of them, is that they don't go through the stringent tests. Yes. That uh, big, big companies have to because, you know, they're, they're putting their faith in it and, confidence in that product you know and, and i mean these guys are experienced so they know what they're doing you know mm-hmm. but uh, still it's it, we would have to have that piece of paper that said this has been through a safety test house and it's it's ready for sale to the public uh which gives peace of mind to both sides really you know? yeah yeah but there's a lot of there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on. It's not just like build a circuit and put it in. Ah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And then, you know, and go and hang out with rock stars yeah. for the rest of the time while you're on the clock, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that, I mean, there's, there's that side of it as we often used to get like people coming in and, uh, you know, every time in the way on tour in England, they'd come and visit. Zach Wilde would always come in, in and because him and Jim were very, very close. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, he used, to, he used to call Jim Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and so Zach would hang about, and it was really funny. I mean, we'd have someone like uh, My Chemical Romance, remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then Jim, Jim used to take them for a, a Chinese meal, you know, in Bletchley, <laughs> you know. And you'd have like, you know, we'd all be sitting there having this Chinese meal in Bletchley at night, and people would, excuse me, yeah. Is that my chemical romance? No. <laughs> no. It's so obvious. It's so obviously was. I remember walking around IKEA with Ingrid Longstein <laughs> across the road from Marcel, you know. And I said, you wouldn't expect to see Ingrid Longstein in IKEA. Well, actually, you probably would, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know yeah. he has to go uh, there. It's uh, part of the uh, citizenship. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's just bizarre. Like, you know, if anyone who lived in Blessings, what was Ingvay Malmsteen buying at IKEA? Something, some kind of Swedish products. Like, I don't know, like he, crisps. Or, I don't know, there, was, there was some food product that he wanted. He could only get there. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah. Because they—that's right. They have the specific Swedish. I, I know what you mean. They have those candies. What are they called, Leon? You, you know those things. Because with a D. Dime. Dime. Yeah. They have. And they do the dime cake there, which is really nice. Mm. Um, so that's. Man, that's that's funny. Like, um, in terms of that, speaking of the, uh, you know, the celebrity element of it, um, did you? Uh, we know speaking of Santiago, he did Ingve's amp and Slash's amp. Was there anything? W- were you involved in any of that kind of process, or were there any amps which maybe you can talk about that say never actually made it to production? Or I imagine there was a lot of people who people would have said, "Oh, you should do a signature amp for this guy or this guy." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was doing. I was actually working on a signature for Gary Moore. Really? Okay. Well, you have to tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite players, obviously, and someone, uh, you know, still got the blues. Is that'd be up there in terms of when you say what are the most iconic Marshall sounds? That'd be in yeah. the top five, probably. You know, I'm trying to think. Gary of, was. That's amazing. Very influential. Very influential player, and you know, I, I had. I had getting as far, I had getting as far as like the the second prototype and only had to do the reverb, right? 
and he's going he had a lot of personal problems at the time a lot of which i won't go into but it was yeah yeah affecting affecting um things the progress of things and uh he sadly died yeah he died right before the project was completed and obviously marshall couldn't release that out because it couldn't be signed off by him mm-hmm. yeah yeah as a signature and couldn't release it because it would look as though marshall was cashing in on on the on that so it was kind of yeah that's well, it's all up there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the um if anyone deserved a signature deserved a signature amp you know it was for me growing up that was one of the reasons i was super into marshall's was i loved the way he sounded and it was so synonymous with gary well i mean i mean a lot a lot of the, the signature amps were driven by korg right um right uh, nick borcott Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Nick, Nick, Nick was uh, Nick was really in heavy metal. He was heavy metal mad, and a lot. So a lot of his friends from when he was in Green River, like Zach, Kerry King, and all that. You know, and he kind of drove that signature amp for them. You know, and I was getting to the point where where Marshall you couldn't oversubscribe with with signature amps so they had to slow the everything that was getting released was a signature amp just about um and ironically which i i, I wasn't very happy with the fact that no english guitarists right yeah <laughs> you know I never even where was richie that. blackmore richie blackmore should have been the first one to have a signature marshall in my opinion yeah he had a signature angle didn't he at that point Funnily enough, straight after Slash got the first signature Marshall. Because, <laughs> oh, <really>? <laughs> I mean, like, that's the sound. I mean, most people in America would be aware of Marshall because of the Hendrix Association, but you can yeah. argue that Hendrix's thing, you know, his the rest of his band were British musicians. He moved to London, you know. There's a mm-hmm. connection with Chaz Chandler and the Animals that, yes, he was American, but, you know, he he, he was very influential in that. British Marshall sound, and uh, I mean, yeah, the Gary yeah. is kind of tragic again because he passed away during during it. Uh, Blackmore, uh, Robin Trow would be another one that comes to mind when I think of. Didn't he play the vintage moderns? Yeah, still does. There you go. That I mean, yeah. I a friend of mine saw him not too long ago and kind of, you know, he was one of those guys who's like, look, he's always sounded great, but it's one of those guitar players that you have to experience it live because he just has this sound. He's, he's a tone master. He's, again, he's, he's the epitome of that sort of like vintage. It takes a lot from Hendrix and he's got that kind of bluesy. It's, his feel comes out to the guitar. He's, he's a really kind of underestimated, um, understated guitar player. Mm. Um, and that's in, in, if you really listen to them properly, then you get into more, yep. you know. We used to play out. a couple of his songs, hey, Leon. Yeah, what, what do we do? I think, uh, what was that? The old <clears throat> Gazman band? I think yeah. the Day of the Eagle, and uh, what's the other one? Not Little Bit of Sympathy, uh, Two Rolling Stones. Two Rolling Stones, yeah, that's right. Yeah, just, yeah. Guys, that, was a, that was an album for me. I think that's the album that, and uh, I mean, there's a few purple albums from. It's like that Rainbow Rising and, you know, Burn, uh, they're my Strat albums. If I (laughs) want to, like, play a Strat and get into it, then they're the ones that I associate that, those 
Blackmore and Trower even more than I would Hendrix. You know, they're bigger influences for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I, it was Jimi Hendrix that started for me when I was, when he when he died. Funny enough, I would have just seen him on TV with his, with his white strat and I just thought like it just looked so great, you know. But mm. the guitarists that influenced me were like the Blackmore. Um, I mean, for all Zeppelin is my favorite band. Jimmy Page is not my favorite guitar player. Mm. Yeah, right. And, I can, uh, I can know, understand that. Yeah, but Blackmore, just his sound, his his style is very innovative. He's not. He doesn't sound like anybody else. Yeah. He gets. He there's a lot of things he brought to the table that other people get credit for. Mm-hmm. Um. So and also Michael Schenker. Um, you you you're speaking my language here, Steve. This is just this is a subject I grew up with anyway. So, um, as well. So, and which is probably directly because this is a stuff my dad grew up on as well. You know. Yeah. So, um, I remember um, seeing Michael Schenker when, when he when he was seventeen or eighteen <laughs> at Newcastle Mayfair, and just he's just good stock still all night with his long blonde hair, but he played like it. Oh, that's just amazing to see. Because isn't there the connection with um, before he was in UFO? Wasn't Bernie Marsden? Did he play with them or? He did, but he didn't have a very happy tenure with them. Yeah, right. I can yeah, understand he, that. Um, no, Bernie, Bernie's time with UFO wasn't very happy, and I, I think it was him who suggested Michael Shannon. Wow. Okay. Um, he's got a book out that says as much. Ah, uh, all right. Bernie, I, I'm, I'm a good that. friend of Bernie's. I'm a good oh. friend of Bernie's. Bernie used to live near the Marshall factory. He used to pop oh, okay. it off the... <laughs> so really guy, nice guy. His, I mean, did he have a signature Marshall or a special edition? Isn't kind there of one now? I thought there was one. Is it a white one or am I imagining that? It's a white one, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's just like a, a, a plexi. Mm. There's, there's, there's nothing different about it. Um, it was just a kind of a tribute to the white snake um, that he had. Yeah. That was done after after I was there, mm. uh, but Bernie Bernie actually wants the um, I've got in my office that I've designed <laughs> that, that never seemed to come out. Yeah, uh, yeah Bernie so one. So that Bernie that, wants the, that. the Gary the Gary Moore one or a different different app. No, the one the one I've the oh one you're I've yeah, yeah designed yeah. the one I've designed. Um, actually, he, I wanna, he wants he wants that. I want to talk about that too, but can, can I just quickly, if you can talk about it, the Gary Moore app. Um, what what was that? Was that based on anything, or was it a from scratch sort of yes. thing? Are you able to talk about that at all? It was based on a on a, a, a plexi. Right. So it used Makes to, sense, the, really. At the end, at the end of his, you know, his, before he died, he was playing just the reissue nineteen, you know, nineteen fifty nine, the hand wired, the hand wired, underwater plexi. So he wanted that. Anybody wanted an extra gain stage mm-hmm. in. And he wanted the option to be able to cut the power oh, yeah. to half because he was getting a lot of complaints, apparently, from the people with the meters oh, who were yeah, threatening, yeah. To, threatening to close his concerts down. Okay, uh, he wanted a- in Europe, right? Because I've toured through Europe and that was, like, strictly enforced where curfews mm. and sound level, like, for, for all... It was strange because I, I remember being like, this is weird, but then they, were, they had a lot of, like, really supported venues and things like that so there were a lot of rules but at least the the venues were open you know that they didn't just shut them when a new apartment complex went up or something 
Well, I mean, Gary, Gary used to play that. Mm. He said, you know, ironically, I mean, I, I was standing in one of his sound checks and he, he's, he had that thing turn right up, which didn't bother me because I pretty much the same. <laughs> um, but he had them, you know, them yellow foam yeah, drugs. Yep. And I says, are you joking? I says, you're playing, you're going to kill the first 15 rows. I says, but you've got to, yeah, you've got yeah. to, some of them. You says, "Well, you've got to feel it." <laughs> no, I agree with that. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, I think the fo- I think the foam earplugs are really great for just listening to guitar because that that real like ear piercing top end disappears. Obviously, you drop the overall volume, but it smooths out that little area. I actually find it really pleasing to listen to, and and as he says, like you can feel like at the physical experience of playing through an amp, you still get that, and it takes all the heat yeah, out yeah. Of as well. I used to, yeah, yeah. When I used to mix front of house, um, I there were gigs like especially loud gigs where same deal. I just put uh, put the foam earplugs in, and just it knocks off just the nasty bits. You can still get a good balance of everything else that you're hearing. It's sort of, it's. I think it's actually, it's not a secret or a, tr- a trick, but I think it's like, you know, valuable. Valuable. It just rolls up, rolls up the top end. Yeah. Uh, which is all, all of the, the, you know, the higher harmonics. Yeah. And all that. the nasty stuff bouncing around the room and, and all that. So that just disappears. Yeah. So. I, I would agree with the headphones thing. It's kind of pleasant and, you know, feeling, feeling your pants flap in the thunder of a four by 12 cabinet is, you know, I feel like it's something that as a guitar player and sort of all the things we've been talking about these, I'm going to call them foundational players for just basically modern guitar music because that's what they are. You know, guys like whether it's Hendrix or Blackmore or, you know, they did things which had never been done before and which are kind of taken for granted now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of that video Pete Thorne did a while ago where it was a plexi, everything dimed and he had a bunch of different players come in and play yep. and you could tell you could tell the seasoned guys knew how to work the volume control and just where to stand and then the people who were used to playing with noise gates and distortion pedals you know it was more noise than actual music they were it was kind of like trying to wrestle a crocodile or something so <laughs> uh, there's it's a, it's it's part of the it's part of the art and the craft of it so you did mention that you're designing something you've got an app that you've been trying to put out um for various reasons um do you is that something you can talk about or something that you know you forecast you'll have a release date for um well i'm hopefully going to get onto action as soon as possible it's it's basically it's it's an arm it's again it's it's the sound is very it's, it's quite vintage but it's got quite a fair bit again it's not going to be some LOS just for the the darts. <laughs> this is this, this is going to breathe some fire. You know what I mean? It's going to. The tone is there, and everyone who's played it has, has been like, "Wow, this is this is it. This is this is what you know. This is what I wanted all of my life." <laughs> which is which is the sort of feedback that I want. You know? Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. So, right. yeah, it sounds fine. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's you know, and and like I said, Bernie Marston really really wanted me to to let him take that on the road and i thought i, I, I cannot it's the only one you know what i mean i cannot yeah, let, yeah. let it out of my out of my care so uh you know i would say no to, to bernie if jeff beck had asked <laughs> yeah, I, well. I would have found it very difficult <laughs> yeah, yeah. to say no to jeff but thankfully i didn't i didn't uh let him but i wasn't around um but no i mean 
uh, I'm hoping to get the ball rolling sometime this year. Right. Uh, again, the problem for me is is the marketing because the moment it's a hundred watt head, but it might not be that. Uh, you have to do market research to find out what's in vogue. You know, it may be that nobody's buying hundred watt heads anymore, or you know, everybody wants thirty watt combos. Yeah, it's interesting because we spoke to uh, Jason from Headfirst Amplification over here, who you know just kind of was curious about electronics and started building amps. And it feels like there's the market. It's a, to me, it's actually amazing that that desire for a hundred watt heads hasn't ever gone away. You know, for me, I still, if I think about, oh, I want a new amp. I mean. For me, I, there's a mystique with 50 watt amps. I feel like because they're they're mm -hmm. a bit underrated. And then you know, reading that Michael Schenker always played a 50 watt head, and Ingve played a 50 watt head, and um, but like Troy's got an old JMP badged uh, 1959 that that Jason's doing some mods to at the moment. But it's just it's a pretty when those amps are good, you know, it's there's nothing like it, is there? Well, it's it's what I grew up with, and I. For me, it's just it's what's it's the foundation, like you said, of tone of, of guitar tone, and it's, it makes you play in a certain way. Um, I mean, look, you get a lot of guys when they come in, and if you if you used to be used to something like that at Marshall, you used to get a lot of guys coming. I'll just plug this tube screamer in, <laughs> makes it easier, oh, makes yeah, it yeah. easier. Look, good. it does make it easier, and you know, to, you do, but a lot of people used to set it so. The tone of the amp had nothing to do with, right. with it anymore. You know what I mean? I thought, well, it's got to be some kind of a, you know, it needs. You have to work for it, and yeah. if you work for it, you'll generally get a better reward. Yeah, it's you it's know? almost like the British versus American thing. You know, if you were going to be mm. super stereotypical, it's like the British side of it is like, no, 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 you got to like, you got to do the hard yards, and you just got to <laughs> stiff up a lip your way through it. And the American thing is like, no, no, just glitz and glamour, bro. Have more gain and. And go nuts. So, um, circling back around from your thing, um, from from my extensive research as well, that complete other end. Were you involved in designing the class five at Marshall as well? Yes, that was uh, that was me. That was my. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. So, what was the? Was that because of I guess what was happening at the time with, you know, low wattage studio amps kind of becoming in vogue? Yeah, yeah. The the, the Five watt format was was quite popular at the time. There's quite a few companies doing the five watt valve amps. Um, so it would, well, it would be silly for Marshall not to get in on that. Uh, and Marshall had done that before with the the old Mercury's and things like that, you know. So it's not like we were new new to it, but it was the right time. Um, and it it just had had to be five watts worth of Marshallness. <laughs> You know, where you could actually crank it. You yep. know, yeah, so yeah. Not, like you didn't have to keep it down. What? You, know, you could actually crank it. Did that present itself with any new challenges compared to doing the higher wattage stuff where, you know, you, you're doing something like the vintage modern, you know it's going to have that top gear when everything's wide open, it's going to scream, and that's like you'd have to sort of optimize for the lower volume stuff. What was the challenge with the Class 5 compared to... A big head. The biggest, the biggest challenge with the class five really was getting it so it came 
competitively in a budget with other stuff that was in the market. Right, right, right. Um, because a lot of stuff was made in the Far East, the Class 5 wasn't. Yeah, right. It was made in the UK, so it was very, very difficult to get the price competitive, even though, to be honest, it, sh it shouldn't have been competing in terms of price with the Far East ones. It was made in the UK. It was a valve amp. It was a Marshall. Yeah, it's got it Marshall be. on it, yeah. It's different. Yeah, yeah. So I just I found I found that you know that possibly a little bit too far in the competitive stakes there. They should have just let it be where it wanted to be and priced it accordingly. Right. But they tried to be a bit more competitive than what they should have been, in my opinion. What year was that? Was that around twenty ten, give or take? Something like that, yeah. 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 Oh, it's a two thousand eight possibly. Two thousand eight, okay, right. I do remember that period of um because I think, uh, yeah, Epiphone, they had that range of um, like lower wattage valve Valve amps. Junior? Valve that Junior, was yeah. one of the ones, yes. That yeah. was one of the ones that and, was out at the time. Yeah, and there were a few other. I remember there was a, this is not uh, like the on the cheaper end, but I think Cornford as well had a cheaper like low wattage amp. Uh, Harlequin, was that it? Yeah, maybe that was the one. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I remember when Gary Moore was the first artist to plug into the Class 5 when it was mm -hmm. in prototype form, and I think... He said he had a, a, a Harlequin. Oh, okay. And uh, he said, he said, this just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> None of the games the Harlequin. I've never even played one, but he said, this is just well, so good. There was that, at that time, I remember really desperately wanting a high-gain, like, boutique like yeah five watt head something like that because i was mostly playing in my bedroom i was playing a bunch of rack gear as well but i was um that was a different story that was more fun and games but i really wanted just something that would be um appropriate i guess for, for bedroom stuff and now that you mentioned that sort of that period of time because i I kind of forgot about that. It's so funny. It's I, funny because I, I kind of want to try and find one now because I remember really like being <laughs> so close to buying one a bunch of different times, like going and playing them in shops and really enjoying what they were doing. And then, yeah, so 2008, I think I started gigging regularly around 2010. And it was sort of in that like, oh, I should probably yeah. make sure I've got stuff that's now that I can actually properly have an excuse to play loud. I was always playing loud and, yeah. you know, always had 100 watt amps, but oh, well, 5 watt amp, that sounds fun. I was going to say though, I think like, you know, going, going back to 100 watt amps and what's in style, it's just, there seems to be so many options now of, if you're going to use a load box or an, uh, you know, you're going to use yes. whatever the ox, the UA ox, or you're going to use a Freyat power station or whatever. It's, it's almost like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like if it's a 5 watt amp or it's a 30 watt amp or whatever, you can still play at any volume and you're going to get an, a decent approximation of the tone because i don't know like both of you you can tell me if i'm crazy or not but like that like that 100 watt head sound or a 50 watt sound it's just like i don't know if it's the tubes or it's the transformer or if it's everything just getting so like hot <laughs> physically uh you know being around it or loud and everything buzzing but i don't know there's just like no there's no quiet way of doing that there's no like smaller way so yeah. In, interest, interestingly, um, and I know you did a video with Santiago about the class A, B, and class A, and class thing and all that. Most people who are bedroom players who play 100, 100 watt marshals only hear the only only hear it in class A. Yeah, interesting. They don't actually they don't actually get it loud enough to get it to get it to go into that B. 
Okay. If the, if they play it in the house. So most people who, who are bedroom players are familiar with the sound of Marshalls in Class A. <laughs> That's funny. Which the class five, the class five is Class A. Right. Oh, there you it's, go. It's, 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 it's Class A right up to its full five watts. So does it just use a yeah. single single power tube? Yeah. Okay, it uses a go. single EL, EL84. Hmm. Uh, you can plug it into a 412 and drag a 412, and then uh, it becomes apparent then that a 5-watt amp is half as loud as a 50. Right, okay. <laughs> In um, terms of the volume, yeah. it's, it's loud. I mean, yeah, I've, I I used to have an Orange Tiny Terra, um, which I I used to gig with quite a lot, but it had it was fifteen or seven and a half watts, I think, or seven watts, I don't remember. But that thing at seven and a half versus fifteen was like not that noticeable. Like, oh, yeah. it wasn't all of a sudden. Oh, it's you know, as we all know, that's not how it works. It's not twice as loud. Well, it's you know, you're not going to get like all this extra volume out of it. One well, louder um, in it. Yeah, but even the seven and a half, it's like I could <laughs> I could gig, I could just about do a pub gig with that, um, with a, at least for stage sound, maybe a little bit of help from front of house, it was fine. So yeah, I don't know. It's a, I mean, uh, when I was when I was playing with the animals, I used to use one of you know them, the Fender um, Pro Junior. Oh yeah, yeah, Pro Junior, yep. The Pro Junior it was just a volume and a tone. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, the sound guy is going to love us. Sound, you know, because they always say, you know, can you say use something? So I said, I'm going to take one of these along. Yep. And um, I was so sick of hearing my solos getting turned up halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is. So, a, uh, I understand the pain. Yep. And I'd look across, and the sound guy would be like talking to some girl, and, you know, I, you know. Yeah. And I'd be like, and there's nothing worse than hearing your solo getting turned up halfway through. Yeah, I'd rather just not be turned, turned yeah. up, you know. So, um, so I just, I've never yeah. had the luxury ever of the like, I don't know, thousand gigs that I've done. I'm almost always the like bringing the PA and doing all of the sound. So it's just, I wish I could have that experience a little bit more often, you know. <laughs> just, yeah, well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? When you, if you use a, you know, when you're in control of the volume, mm. if your solo boosts up, you, you can't be heard. There's nothing worse than just being, yeah. You know, working so hard, and people say, "Well, it looked great." Yeah. <laughs> See, I always tell people, um, I tell singers, because um, I'm really bad at learning lyrics for songs, and I always tell people, like, "Look, if you just don't, um, if you don't know the words, just, just look really like you're into the song so hard, and just mump." and just pull away from the microphone, so it just becomes the sound guy's problem. Oh, it looked yeah. great, like. Oh, thanks so much. That's all I. That's all I ask. Doesn't really matter what sounds like. Turned you down. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Same deal, really. Same deal. Yep. Um, by the way, um, I actually played in your neck of the woods. Did you really? Yes. Um, that was in, in 1996. Uh, right so you're in Perth. We're you're in Perth. Perth yeah. Right? Yep. Are, are you in Perth as well, yes. Troy? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the very first place I visited in Australia. Awesome. Was Perth, and it, it was February '96, and God, it was hot. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, oh, February's yeah. the hottest month here, so oh, it's very bad. I was just stepping off that plane, and it was like stepping into an oven. Yeah, I bet. And I just remember walking down the high streets, and there was all of these shops with loads of tower fans. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to just go in and stand in front of them. 
I feel um, like we yeah. didn't all get yeah. air conditioning until like 2000, maybe 99. Ooh. Maybe that was the transition, but it was hot, man. So um, who were you playing with at the time? The Animals. That was with the Animals, right. Playing with the Animals. We didn't actually play in Perth. We stayed in Perth when right. we arrived. And we played in uh, Albany. Oh, right. Um, right. Interesting. Yeah, Mandra. A little cooler. And Mandra as well. Mandra. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and Kalgoorlie. Did you? Oh, we love Kalgoorlie here. Kalgoorlie. But you, you are an official uh, friend of the podcast yep. now, Stephen, because often <laughs> people who haven't gigged in Perth and uh, Troy's done that gig a thousand times. I've done it 990 times. You know, it's like, it's, it's like going back in time, isn't it? It's the Australia yeah, but, you see in the movies. Oh, particularly in 96. It's geez. very colonial sort of uh, vibe and the uh, interesting street of uh, young ladies. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my granddad uh grow- when i was growing up he um he had this expression was uh, something would oh that'll never happen otherwise i'll walk down hay street with my pants down and i never knew what he was talking about because we have the main street in perth city uh the perth city it's called, hay street. It's called hay street mm. and then i went to kalgoorlie and found out that hay street was where all of the prostitutes <laughs> were yeah. so <laughs> But yeah, didn't tell me that Charles an adult. But yeah, for, for anyone listening, uh, Kalgoorlie is one of the few places, if maybe the only place in Australia, where prostitutes can solicit their wares on the street, and it's still there. And a lot of the pubs uh, still have the skimpy barmaid, so girls serving you in their bikini. And then a lot of them, they'll be fifteen minutes out of the hour. They don't wear their tops either. So you can imagine when you're. 23 years old and you go and play those gigs and you're staying at the hotel the uh the, the thrill of it all basically it was a, um, we had a lot so, of fun there in uh not in weird creepy ways but we just had a lot of fun yeah. in those places um yeah in our 20s but that was not in 96 it's, i said that would have been a very different it, time again 96 would have been proper wild yeah it's kind of it was kind of like the Amsterdam of australia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually yeah that's a good way of putting it that's a very very good way of putting it so, how, were the, how were the gigs uh were, did you enjoy great. the gigs yeah excellent we, it was us and the yardbirds yeah we did a, 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 a you know a double headline where so you know we'd alternate who was headlining every and we started on on the in the perth side mm-hmm. and did and did those gigs and we went across to up to darwin oh great and came, and came all the way down that coast to um, mm-hmm. wow. Cairns. Great place in Cairns called Jono's Blues Bar. Okay. Isn't that, the best Isn't that the most Australian name for a pub as well or venue? Yeah. Jono's Blues Bar. And, and they had a house band and Jono was in the house band. It was oh, right. one of the best gigs I've ever played in my life. It was fantastic. Right. The vibe was absolutely brilliant. I'll never forget that gig. That's great. Um, came down, Mackay, uh, Brisbane, mm-hmm. Townsville, Sydney, the 10th anniversary Sydney Bikers Festival we played there. Okay. Um, and I've got, I've got all the dates written down somewhere, but we were there for a good two or three weeks. It was great. It was fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. I Absolutely loved it. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful time. Great. Came back in 1997 as well, but only to the, oh, the East Coast. The, the East Coast, yeah. Not the uh, West um, Coast, Best Coast. No, the, the promoter we used at that time was only was based over on the west on the east coast. At that only had Well, the fact you came here at all in that time in yeah. the '90s is quite surprising because we didn't get anything over here, um, touring wise. Because we had a lot of artists that would come from America, so it's you know it's it's e- easier to get to the east coast. But then it's one capital city over on our side of the country, so 
you know, you're not really yeah. coming for the same sort of audience. It's really tough. So yeah, it's yeah, admirable that you made it. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. I had a great time there, you know. Um, and what my, I know we've been speaking about amps a lot, understandably, but like what what's been the constants through your rigs when it have you have you always kind of played the same guitar? You know, I noticed you've got a big headstock strat for pure Blackmore I've, rock worship. I've got I've got a couple actually. I've got two seventies uh, strats, which is and I bought them from you. All right, I, I bought them you, since hey. I was 76. That's the same as yours, hey, uh, William. Here we go. While Steve's getting his, uh, this is a 1977 Fender Strat. It's been refretted with stainless wire by Tim and MT Guitars. And Troy, you actually did a pretty, pretty great job at cleaning this one up. I sure a did. While ago. Um, look at that. Well, hang on. Hang on. Let me just uh, let's wait, strat up. <laughs> <laughs> Now this had a this had a black scratch to play on when I first bought it. Right. Okay. In '76, in it was exactly the same, exactly like that. The, the black plastic. Here we go. It. Big headstock. I didn't. I didn't like that. I didn't. I wanted the white. I I don't yeah, want to yeah. be left out. Sorry, I've got this is a a, a Japanese Strat, um, '70s style. Yeah. So I just have to be involved. Yes, this is the way. There's the thumbnail taken care of for this video straight away. So, so there you go. They're they're definitely cousins. Now, is that aside from the scratch plate? Is uh, have you changed anything with the electronics or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I've got I've, I've, I've customized electronics to to where I want. These are Kinnaman pickups. Okay, from Australia. From Australia. Yeah. How do you like I them? Because my favorite, my favorite pickups. Noiseless pickups. When I was when I was playing with the animals, we used to do a lot of TV show and having that buzz, you know, the six, the fifty cycle buzz, six cycle buzz, was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So these were a godsend. And these, I went through a few different brands, and these were the ones I arrived at, which sound to me like still like a Strat, mm-hmm. and the noise cancelling is fantastic. These are the Woodstocks. Kinman Woodstocks. Okay. They're the ones I feel like if you're going to get some Kinmans, people are like, yeah, start with these. And then um, Chris Kinman's kind of one of those, from everything I've heard, he's one of those just, you know, he does his thing and it, some of the ideas he has and some of the things he comes up with are just like, man, how how did you think of that? And then it works. It seems so out of the box and then it works so well. I think I think he was the first one to do those pickups. Okay. Oh right, I believe I believe he was the first. Uh, but I I, I I recommend these highly. They're fantastic. I have to try them out. I need to put some new pickups in my. I've got a uh, another uh, '80s Jap Strat over there, which um, it's just a bit bit janky sounding at the moment. Um, it's just been set up and it plays great, but it is not quite sounding right. So mm-hmm. I might just go through change the pickups out. So I'll look into those ones. So also, ah. Oh. Oh. A bit of Ingve. Ah, uh, no. Or Richie Blackmore. Did, did Richie have do it done, first? Have you done the semi-scallop, the Blackmore-style ones? <laughs> oh, he's lost the... Oh, no. He's lost the plug. Leon, yeah, just um, describe for those listening in audio. Sorry, I'm, I'm, oh, it's okay. I pulled my headphones out in the excitement. <laughs> yeah, <That's> right. <laughs> so I'll explain. Very quickly, and to anyone who's watching the visual podcast, this is my Ingve strat, which has... Oh, I need to put it this way, not towards the actual monitor. You can probably see if it will focus. 
Mm-hmm. Come on, focus. You got this. Let's get it focused on the head soccer. You can science. see you can see a bit of the uh the scalloping there, Leon. Anyway, yeah, it's, the it's very deep on... and it's all the way. But the Blackmore style ones, uh, he just kind of takes the high strings. No, it he does the whole neck, but it's more like a tick. If you look, it's more like a tick, right. a semicircle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right, okay. It's more like that's, a tick. Yeah. So now, did you do that yourself? Yeah. In nineteen eighty. Wow. Was there, uh, can you remember, was it just a kind of like, all right, I'm going to do this, or was it like, if I mess this up, you roll my favorite guitar? Because I was such a Blackmore fan, and Ingwie wasn't even around then. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, the, I was such a Blackmore fan. You couldn't buy, you couldn't buy Stellar Strat, so I just thought, uh, yeah. madness. You know, Brute Emma wasn't a vintage guitar at the time. Well, yeah. yeah. So what's the and purpose of the tick shape versus the normal, like, semicircle? Like, why? Because, well, because that's where that? your, your finger is... The, where the tick is at the deepest. Oh, okay, I understand. Is that? And I, I just looked at photographs of Richie's guitar, and <clears> I just thought, well, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Yep. In terms of done. like keeping it in tune, is it a little bit more difficult? Because I'd imagine like that deep, <laughs> that depth would be tough, when right? You're, when you're playing chords, yeah, uh, certainly. But you just you just learn to just have a very very light touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it makes it kind of makes you more articulate, really. To you know, because you don't expend any energy on. You know, yeah, especially um, on old strats. Like before, I had this one refretted. It was you talk, you we were talking about like the effort you have to expend earlier. There was a lot of effort going on, you know, with small frets and small, uh, small radius. It's you, you got to earn those notes out of there. Um, you mentioned very briefly as well, and I want to, I just want to ask about this because he's one of my favorite players, and I feel like so underappreciated, um, outside of. Europe and the UK is Uli Roth. Um, was he, you know, someone you you kind of just mentioned him before we before we started? So is, yeah. is he someone you've worked with before, or is he? Yeah, 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 yeah right. Because yeah, does he live in the UK? Yes, he lives in uh, near Wales, Oswestry, Oswestry near Wales. Right. Uh, uh, Uli was talking to me about his signature, and this was after it was at Marshall. Right. about the signature amp but to be honest his ideas were so bizarre and out there <laughs> in terms of what he wanted I just said this is this thing's not going to be liftable never mind sellable <laughs> you know so it kind of it's kind of all you know but um, I mean Uli's a great player he's a great great player uh, and one, one of the, the albums I would add to those albums that you mentioned before for Strat is uh, Virgin Killer by, yes. the, by yes. the Scorpions, some amazing strat work on there. Man, just his um, uh, what was the other? Obviously, the song that I remember hearing and being like, oh, where it clicked, where it's like, there's the other. You know, reading interviews with Ingve, who's one of my favorite players, is always like Richie Blackmore, Richie yeah. Blackmore, Richie Blackmore, and then a bunch of composers. But hearing Uli, it's like, and especially Sales of Sharon, is like, there yeah. it is. That's the. That's where you go from the the thing Richie was doing, where it's just he's pulling from some you know Blackmore was pulling all these other influences from elsewhere, but it's a like for me, Uli Roth had the finesse, like and you know mm-hmm. like a lot of those um, watching how he like he's playing so elegant and so relaxed and he never looks like he's straining too hard, whereas Richie's. You, you watch those old rainbow or deep purple clips is like he'll flick the toggle switch to the neck pickup 
adjust the volume control, play nothing, and then flick it back. And then, you know, he's very kinetic on there. And you could tell he yeah. was digging in, but Uli just had that, like, grace about his playing. Yeah, Uli is, uh, I mean, Uli took a 14-year sabbatical just to compose. <laughs> uh, you know, he's so dedicated to the to the music and probably, you know, his, his approach to his playing Richie's probably the sort of like, how can I make this impressive and make it, you know, and just, um, I mean, my, my favorite Richie playing is in the studio, not live. Live, mm -hmm. he tends to just be a bit kind of cavalier about it, you know, mm -hmm. but some of the, there's some, I mean, there's a track called Coroner Arias Redig. I don't know. Have you ever heard of that? It's from the Burn era. It was the B side of a, of a single. Okay. Oh, okay. Coroner Arias, we dig. It's an instrumental. I okay, look at that. Yeah. Waiting, waiting to, to get a singer. And this guitar playing on there is Richard his best. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's my essential listening. I've I've learned many things today, but I hadn't even heard that B side. So that's fascinating. Um, yeah. So the final the final verse, his guitar playing. I'll, I'll say no more. And I mean, yeah. it's, I think as well, like growing up in Australia, Deep Purple in particular are, like, I'll put it this way. And uh, I went to see Deep Purple and Journey with my wife, um, who's American. And if that gig was happening in America, Journey would be the headliner and there'd be another band and then Deep Purple. But Deep Purple mm. headlined here. Uh, and I love both bands, but yeah, they're, still supremely popular here and same thing i know in the uk and on the continent you know there there's something where it's like they i think because they weren't an american band you know they're they're well known amongst guitar players and stuff like that but um richie for that reason doesn't like i still feel like he's a bit underrated in the conversation where people think of british guitarists and it's clapton page iomi Oh yeah, and that. Oh, and of course, yeah, Richie Blackmore. We forgot about him, but you know, Americans, yeah. have, Americans have Van Halen, so but that's what they want to talk about. Didn't Richie kind of do that to himself because he sort of disappeared a bit? Yeah, he, well, he sort of. Yeah, he, he and also as well, Richie never claimed any kind of. Uh, say, Clapton, Beck, and Page said they took their heritage from the American blues scene and all that, you know, so the Americans probably welcomed them more open arms. Richie never did that, he, he, you know, or very little of that compared to those. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, so they were probably, well, how come a pigeonhole Richie? Kind of, <laughs> oh, like, oh, that's, he's, you know. Um, I, I don't know, it's, it's, he's certainly under underestimated and as far as I'm concerned, he should be right up there with Clapton, Beck and Page. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly around at the same time as those guys, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rainbow, like I said, Rainbow Rising for me is just, I can always listen to that album and hear something that I didn't pick up before. And his slide playing is amazing as well, you know? Like, that's another whole oh, yeah. thing. People get into the technical stuff he was doing, but great slide player, great writer, you know? I saw them I saw them on that tour when they first came. Yeah. I saw wow. them at Newcastle City Hall and met them all. Oh, wow. And uh, I... I met Richie, and I was, bear in mind, I was only 16, 17 at the time. And uh, he came out, and he signed a couple of autographs, and I said, he smashed his guitar that night. Uh -huh. And I said, I said, I wish you hadn't smashed that guitar. I said, I would have loved to have had that, you know. And he said, oh, they're giving away all my Stratocasters at Julie's Nightclub, which is a nightclub down by the Newcastle Quayside. Wow. And I actually believed him. <laughs> 
I believed him. I would have believed that at that age. Yeah. I just would have been like, okay, Mr. Blackmore, I'll see you there. Well, I, I went down, me and a friend went down and, and hung around outside this nightclub that we were too young to get in. <laughs> and then realized he's just, you know, donkey's ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it, was, it was like a load of crap. But I actually got in to the to meet the rescue. And I spent about twenty minutes talking to Ronnie Deal. Oh wow! Right, who was who was drawing pictures of hats on Richie Blackmore on the program? <laughs> I, was, I was asking about that hat that Richie, you know, the Quaker hat sort of thing. You know, <clears throat> he's got you being this sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I just I I just chucked that program away. You know? yeah. I just, Oh man. Just just want to put it just want to put it up on the wall. That's yeah. That'd be amazing. You know, it was uh, the, the tour manager was from my hometown anyway, Colin Hart. Okay, right. I've heard that so, name before. Yeah, Colin Hart. Yeah, he, he was he was working from with Deep Purple from 71. Then he went with Richie to Rainbow, and then he came back to Purple. Right. Um so you know, I had that it was great. It was really, it was a great, you know, 1976. That was Newcastle City. I've seen Rainbow every time they came, actually. Yeah. What a great band. Yeah. Oh, man. Fantastic. And, and Richie, I would say Richie was, if you caught him on a bad night, he was awful. <laughs> but if you caught him on, if you caught him on a good night, there was nobody better. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's so Nobody better. Well, on that on that night of reminiscences, I feel like this, I feel like when he just kind of started to get going, so... If you, if you'll if you'll have us again, Steve, we would love to have you back on. Um, anytime, anytime. Maybe, maybe once your amp is out in the wild and we can talk about it and hear some sound examples and things like that. But uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Where can people find out more about what you do? Um, uh, I have a website, root r r o t hyphen t w o root2.co.uk and I tend not to to keep it up to date too much because I'm so busy with other things also uh, with, with the Geordie thing you see I'm splitting my time between the, and Geordie's becoming very active this month right um, so I'm starting rehearsals next week um, so yeah I mean like I say I tend not to be too hot on the marketing mm-hmm. it's not my forte if you know what I mean <laughs> I feel uh, you me too Facebook page you know, sort of thing. Again, they'll probably if they go there, they'll probably find this interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, people can uh, if they enjoy this and they enjoy your insights and they enjoy some of the things that you've designed that we've talked about mm-hmm. today. That they'll uh, no doubt enjoy what you're about to come out with. So, to everybody watching mm-hmm. and listening, go and check out uh, mm-hmm. Route Two and. Steve, thank you so much, mate. It's been it's a pleasure. Been yeah. Absolute pleasure. Actually, actually, I'm quite surprised that you didn't touch on the Astoria range. Well, maybe we that's exactly what we need to t- talk about on part two. And that, was, that was my that was my swan song at Marshall, the Astoria, and I'm particularly proud of that one. And that's actually what I use at the moment. Uh, I actually oh, was gonna right. ask I was gonna ask you that too. Well, yeah, we'll definitely part two. We'll come back. So leave that as the taster, the teaser for everybody else. They'll be clamoring on it in the comment section. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. I have to go. Steve, thank you so much. It was lovely to lovely to do this. I'll I'll be in touch once this is all edited <clears throat> and out, and we'll stay in touch. And yeah, we need to 
Absolutely. We your stories and thank you so much for your time again. Yeah, thank mate. you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great to meet you guys. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Hopefully you get to make some loud guitar noises. I certainly will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for everyone else, thank you so much for listening in again and we'll catch you next week on the Gear Podcast. And